Welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. Chrisman taking over the podcast today. Um, in the last podcast, at least the short that we did on the American Revolution, we talked about how uh, the American colonists uh, defeated the, the British Army. Kind of a surprise uh, there. What we're going to talk about today is uh, the governmental structure that the colonists um, will set up for themselves, not only during the American Revolution, but afterwards as well. Uh, and this governmental system that they're going to create uh, is roughly the same governmental system we use today. We're going to talk more in another podcast short about some of the main ideas uh, about the Constitution, some of the principles, the ideas upon which uh, the, the government is built on. So we're going to uh, back up just a little bit here in our timeline. So when we, we finished yes in the last podcast, um, we talked about how... Uh, Battle of Yorktown takes place in uh, 1781. It's the battle where the the French and the Americans fight alongside each other and basically defeat a and cause a British army to surrender. Uh, and peace talks begin. It's at that point that the American colonists start to realize, hey, we need to create some sort of government here, um, and we need to create a government that's going to be more effective than the one that we had. So. Towards the end of the revolution, in March 1st of 1781, uh, the Continental Congress creates its first constitution, which becomes known as the Articles of Confederation. Uh, this is the colonists' first attempt at creating a government. Uh, it does not go very well, I'll be quite honest. Uh, the colonists, uh, now the American citizens, uh, went from having a government with too much power under the English king uh, and they created a government under the Articles of Confederation with a complete opposite problem, and that is it did not have enough power. Um, the, under, the Articles of Confederation really was designed to prevent despotism or, or, or tyrannical king like they had before. Uh, the Articles of Confederation had no executive branch, meaning that there was no president, so there was nobody to use and abuse power. Uh, which to the colonists, to the American citizens now, uh, that sounded great. The only problem is uh, there's no one to enforce the laws. Uh, according to the Articles of Confederation, there was no judicial branch, um, which again uh, meant that there could be no abuse of power, but it also meant that there was no national court system. They did have a legislative branch that was called the, the Confederation Congress, but that Confederation Congress had no power to force states to pay taxes. Taxes were optional, and states could choose to pay taxes to the national government or not. That Confederation Congress also could not regulate trade, uh, so any trade that was going to be taking place would, take, would be regulated uh, by the states. So you'd have 13 different states with 13 different rules uh, when it came to regulating trade. The Confederation Congress is uh, set up in a very interesting way. Each state could choose to send between two and seven representatives to the Confederation Congress, but the catch is no matter how many representatives they sent, whether it was two, whether it was five, whether it was seven, each state only had one vote in the Confederation Congress. And any law that needed to be passed required nine of the 13 states to approve it. And if they wanted to make any changes to the Articles of Confederation, any change at all, had to be a unanimous decision, meaning that all 13 states had to approve it, meaning that one state could uh, block any change to the Articles of Confederation. Now, with that said, there are there is one good thing that comes out of 
the Articles of Confederation, and it had to do with the land out west, west of the Appalachian Mountains. As American, colon, American colonists start moving out there and there's conflict with the Native Americans, uh, states claim that they own land out there. Uh, the area where we currently live was claimed not only by New York, but Massachusetts. Uh, some states actually started to mobilize their militias to fight other states over the land out west. So the Confederation Congress passed uh, a law called the Land Ordinance of 1785 that decided that that land out west uh, that was being argued over did not belong to any one state. It belonged to the national government. And the national government would then sell that land to the uh, to the folks who are moving out west, those settlers, uh, and the, the national government would take that um, money that they get from the, the land purchases to pay off the $27 million worth of debt that they owe to Britain and to uh, France. Then the Confederation Congress passes the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which created a way to make new states, brand new states, out of the territories out west. And that, uh, that process, by the way, is the process uh, that we still use today when a territory wants to become a new state. Real problems occur, though, in 1780, the winter of 1786 to 1787, uh, and that event will become known as Shays' Rebellion. Uh, it's led by an um, American uh, Revolutionary War veteran by the name of Daniel Shays. Um, Daniel Shays is not some crazy, uh, crazy guy. He is a, a veteran of the battle at Lexington, at Bunker Hill, and at Saratoga. Uh, when the war was over, Daniel Shays returned home uh, to western Massachusetts, uh, where he lived. Um, there were high taxes in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had been devastated by the war, and to help pay for that, taxes were very high. Uh, but those high taxes in Massachusetts was causing farmers, over a thousand of them, uh, to lose their most valuable item. And the most valuable item that any farmer owns is his land. Uh, and that included Daniel Shays. Being a veteran of the revolution and knowing what the Declaration of Independence said, he led a group of farmers uh, in an re open rebellion against the Massachusetts government. Now they claimed that what they were doing was right, that what, what they were doing was what the Declaration of Independence said that they should do. That uh, when a government becomes abusive and won't listen to the people, the people have the right to alter or abolish the government. If you listen to the last podcast, you know we talked about that being uh, a natural right. Now, this creates a problem because Massachusetts government isn't just going to lay down. So Massachusetts government asked the national government, the Confederation Congress, uh, for help. However, remember, taxes are optional. No states would collect taxes to deal with the rebellion. Essentially, other states said, look, Massachusetts, this is your problem. You have to deal with it. So Massachusetts calls out its militia. There's a short battle uh, near Springfield, Massachusetts, where there's a very large arsenal. Uh, Daniel Shays and his men were defeated. Now, the Massachusetts government is able to deal with this, but it brings up some real problems. How, can it, how could the government deal with a situation like this if it was something bigger? What if England had come back? How could America defend itself if each of the states was looking out only for itself? Now, if you look at the folks who led the revolution and, and were uh, still in positions of leadership, the reactions are split. Um, you have Samuel Adams, who's in the Massachusetts government, uh, whose reaction, uh, I, I love the quote from him. He says, quote, rebellion against a king may be pardoned or lightly punished 
but the man who dares to rebel against the laws of a republic ought to suffer death, unquote. Again, Samuel Adams, the leader of the American Revolution, or one of the leaders of the American Revolution, feeling that what he did was right and okay because he rebelled against the king. But a republic where the people elect their officials, uh, you can't rebel against that. Thomas Jefferson had a very uh, different take on Shays' Rebellion. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, A little rebellion, rebellion now and then is a good thing. It is medicine necessary for the sound health of government. God forbid that we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion, unquote. Jefferson clearly is looking at this as uh, this event as a reminder to the government as, as to who's really in charge, and that's not the government. It's the people uh, of that government. So interesting reaction. Um, in addition to that, you have some issues going on with trade uh, and, and some concern about regulation of trade. Other countries aren't willing to trade with the United States because they're having to deal with different rules as they trade with different states. So there's a call for a meeting uh, of the states in September of 1786, kind of on the very edge of Shays Rebellion uh, in Annapolis, Maryland. Now remember, any changes to the Articles of Confederation would require a unanimous decision. The problem is once they get to Annapolis, Maryland, they realize that only New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia had sent representatives. Even though the meeting's in Maryland, Maryland does not even send a representative, so there's not enough states to make any changes to the Articles of Confederation, so they set a new meeting date for the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the hopes that more states would send representatives there and more could get done. Shays' Rebellion will cause more states to arrive and want to discuss how do we fix the problems of the Articles of Confederation. So starting on May 25th of 1787, uh, we have 55 representatives who will arrive in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, representing 12 states. Uh, now, if you remember, there's 13 states, so the one state that does not send any representatives to the Constitutional Convention, as this meeting will be called, um, Rhode Island sends no delegates. They're not concerned about concentrated, or I'm sorry, they are concerned about concentrated power in the national government. Um, and therefore, because Rhode Island doesn't show up, they can't make any amendments or changes to the Articles of Confederation. Now, what happens next is kind of interesting. The delegates realize they can't make changes to the Articles of Confederation. So what they decide to do is they start decide to write a brand new constitution. That's why this meeting will become known as the Constitutional Convention. The meetings will take place starting again on May 25th and will last until September 17th of 1787. So that's quite a few months that they're going to meet together and to talk about the government and what the government, what they want the government to do, and more importantly, what they don't want the government to do. George Washington is one of those representatives at the meeting. Uh, he is voted as the president of the meeting, meaning that he would be the one to make sure that uh, people are following rules of order, that uh, you know things are, are working in an orderly way. Um, the delegates all agree that they are going to shut the windows and the drapes so that people cannot watch or listen in. They agreed not to talk about the debates that they're going to have about government outside of the room. They did not want newspapers and public opinion to influence their decisions or others. Um, now, there were quite a few folks that you might recognize. Names like John Adams was there representing the state of Massachusetts. Uh, I'm sorry, John Adams was not there 
and Thomas Jefferson was not there. They were uh, off in Europe. Um, they were uh, ambassadors. Jefferson was the ambassador to France. Adams was the ambassador to Great Britain. Uh, but some of the other leaders that were there besides George Washington representing Virginia would be people like Benjamin Franklin representing Pennsylvania, James Madison, another representative from Virginia, and Alexander Hamilton, uh, who would represent New York. So they, again, immediately, almost immediately decided to ditch the Articles of Confederation and to write a new constitution. Now, that's going to bring up a number of issues, and I'm going to try and go through these issues uh, and, and make them have make sense to you. Um, many adults actually have a hard time with understanding the issues of the Constitution and the compromises that are made to alleviate those problems. So the first issue is representation. How do you deal with, how do you determine how many representatives and how many votes each state gets in the government? Um, the first plan that's laid forward is uh, put together by James Madison and Edmund Randolph, both from Virginia, so it becomes known as the Virginia Plan. Uh, the Virginia Plan was relatively simple. It uh, was to have three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And they wanted to have a unicameral legislature. Uh, if we break those words down, una means one, like unicycle has one wheel. Cameral uh, means houses or parts. So unicameral legislature. And under the Virginia Plan, the number of representatives would be based on a state's population. Now, two guys from Virginia would love to have everything based on population because Virginia would have many more votes than, than um, the other states. They had the largest population. Matter of fact, if we went forward with the Virginia plan in that time period, Virginia by itself could outvote Delaware, Rhode Island, New Jersey, and New Hampshire combined. So immediately the smaller size states, population-wise, thought the Virginia plan was not a good idea. So that would give Virginia too much power and there was real concern about concentrated power in the hands of one person or one group. So William Patterson from New Jersey floated a different idea, which became known as the New Jersey Plan. He actually kept the idea of three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, uh, but instead of, a, instead of having a unicameral legislature, he proposed a bicameral legislature. Bi is a prefix meaning two. Again, camel is houses or parts. So a two-part legislature where he said that it should be more fair that every state has equal representation. Now states like Virginia thought that that was unfair because Virginia's population in this time period is roughly 734,000 people and if you're from Virginia how is it fair that your state that has 734,000 people has the same number of votes as a state like Delaware that only has 55,000 people? what is right, what is fair. The arguments and debates went back and forth for a couple of weeks. And finally, uh, they put together something that became known as the Great Compromise. And basically what it did is it took the two plans and it mixed them together. So we have a bicameral legislature, two parts or two houses. Um, we have the House of Representatives as one part and we have the Senate as another part. The House of Representatives is based on the Virginia Plan, meaning that in the House of Representatives, the number of representatives you have is based on a state's population. So today, states like California, Texas, and New York have a large number of representatives, whereas states like Wyoming, uh, Montana, Rhode Island, and Delaware 
although some of those states are large in size, population-wise are not very big. This is why we have a census every 10 years. As a matter of fact, this year is 2020. Uh, we are having a census uh, this year. Folks need to fill out their forms and states will either add or lose representatives based on their population. There's a grand total of 435 representatives and that's the cap. Historically, New York has been, in the, has been towards the top population-wise, but in the last 30 years or so, they've been losing representation because the population has been going down. Other states have been gaining uh, representation because their populations are going up. So the House representatives, or at least in the House representatives, the large population states dominate. So the second part of our bicameral legislature is called the Senate. It's based on the New Jersey plan. Every state in, in the Senate is, is equal. Uh, all states have two senators. With there being 50 states, not good with math, but even I know that means that there are a grand total of 100 representatives. And in the Senate, um, small states have equal amount of power as the large states population-wise. So in order for a bill, a proposed law, to become a law, it has to pass the House of Representatives, where the large states dominate, and it has to pass the Senate, where the small states population-wise have an equal say in the government uh, as the large population states. I would like to point out uh, the Virginia plan and New Jersey plan had the three branches of government. We kept that as well. Um, so it seems like all of the, you know, the, a major issue here or major hurdle has been, um, has, has been tackled, so to speak. But now there's another problem that comes up with, if you're going to use population to count in the House of Representatives, who gets counted? Do we count just voters? Back then, voters were land-holding men for the most part. Do we, do we count women? Do we count Native Americans? Do we count African Americans who are free, free blacks? Do we count enslaved Africans? So the decision was made that all white men and women would count, free blacks would count in the population. Native Americans would not count in the population, as a matter of fact, would not be even, be even considered citizens until 1920. The real sticking point were those enslaved Africans. If enslaved Africans were counted, it would boost the southern states' representation more so than the northern states. Now remember, northern states had slavery, but not in the large numbers that the southern states did. So the compromise that was reached became known as the three-fifths compromise, which meant that slaves would count as three-fifths of a person. So slaves would count in the population, but they wouldn't count as a whole person. It did help the southern states, but it didn't help them as much as if slaves were counted as a full person. Another part of that three-fifths compromise that people forget is that slavery couldn't be touched for 20 years, meaning that slavery, as a part of this compromise, would be in effect until 1807, meaning that the government, as much as it might want to get rid of slavery, wouldn't be able to do it until the earliest in 1807. So with those issues kind of out of the way, and some other issues as well, which I'm not going to get into right now, um, we have 39 of the 55 delegates who will sign the Constitution on September 17th of 1787. Those 39, by signing the document, uh, are indicating that they, they like the document they, and, and they agree with the document. Now, again, I don't have to be very good at math to know 
that that's not every de delegate or every representative at the Constitutional Convention liked the new Constitution. There were 16 delegates who did not sign it, which included Patrick Henry, Mr. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, and Richard Henry Lee, who was the grandfather of General Robert E. Lee from the Civil War. But it didn't matter. Enough of the representatives had, or the delegates had signed the Constitution. But we didn't use it right away. Now it had to be sent to the states. Nine of the 13 states had to ratify or approve the Constitution. And this is where you end up with Americans being divided into two categories. You ended up with Federalists, those folks who liked this new government that had a strong federal or national government. And those folks included people like George Washington, John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. And you had another group who thought that this, this new constitution was, was dangerous, that that position of president might become too much like a king, that the concern about checks and balances, that the, the government would abuse its power, um, those voices were, were very loud, and they were known as anti-federalists. And the anti-federalists included people like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, who led the Boston Tea Party, and again, Patrick Henry, Mr. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. Another concern that the anti-federalists had is that there was no specific list of rights of the people. Many states had written their own Bill of Rights for the state, but there had been no national Bill of Rights. So in order to persuade people to vote uh, the way that they believe, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay wrote a series of newspaper articles that became known as the Federalist Papers, attempting to influence um, American voters into voting yes for the new, new Constitution. Agreements were made between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and eventually the Anti-Federalists agreed that they would vote yes as long as a Bill of Rights would be added to the new Constitution. Delaware would be the first state to ratify the new Constitution in December of 1787, and that's why if you look at a Delaware license plate today, it says the first state, because technically they're the first state under the new Constitution. New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify it in June of 1788. That's important because once the ninth state approves it, it becomes part of what we're going to follow. The problem was in June of 1788, New York and Virginia still hadn't ratified the Constitution and they were the two biggest states. However, during the summer of 1788, a little bit later, I believe it was July, uh, both New York and Virginia will approve the new Constitution. Rhode Island, not surprisingly, will become the last to approve the Constitution and they don't do that until May 29th of 1790. And at that point, George Washington was already president and the new constitution had been in effect for over a year. 10 amendments are gonna be ratified or approved and then added to the constitution in December of 1791 as a way to make anti-federals feel a little more comfortable with the new government that was formed. This new government is the government we still have today in 2020 and is a government that is not perfect, but better than most. In our next podcast, we're going to talk more about the three branches of government, uh, the system of checks and balances, and some of the main and basic ideas that the, the Constitution is built upon. And we'll talk about some historical examples of those types of things. I appreciate you uh, for taking the time to listen. 
Uh, if you have any questions uh, for us to answer or topics for us to discuss, please contact us at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com or send us a tweet at hollyhistory. Please don't forget we have a ton of episodes, including other history shorts at Holly History on SoundCloud or on our Holly History channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening.